Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me. Box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives. And uh, become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Uh, well, before we do get started, I do want to let you know today's episode is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners, and you can support the show at support.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it's time for today's episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and then after that, we'll pick up with Dr. Tim Detective. But here now is The Lamar Matter, Part 5. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Larry Comstock, Johnny, at Tri-Mutual Insurance. You're out at the Lamar home. Yeah, Larry. Police crime lab, find out anything more about the stuff from here they took in for examination? Yes. Yes, they certainly did. Well? They found traces of that poison, pyrodameron, on the toothbrush that Thomas Lamar was using just before he on died. To- Are you kidding? Oh, no. No, indeed, John. Not a bit. There's a murder weapon for you, a toothbrush. Larry, send the cops out here. I think I've just about got this case sewed up. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location South Bend, Indiana. To the Universal Adjustment Bureau, Hartford, Connecticut... The following is my final entry of expenses incurred during investigation of the Lamar murder. And murder it most certainly was. It was in La Jolla, California, during my so-called vacation, that I met, and I must admit, kind of fell for Vonnie Lamar. It was from La Jolla that I flew her back to South Bend, Indiana, when we both received news of her foster father's sudden death. All the clues I'd been able to dig up seemed to point to one Walter Marson who had been Lamar's personal secretary and who lived at the Lamar mansion. At his room there in the house, I found the one book in the world that described the poison, pyridamarin, that had killed Thomas René Lamar. Poison derived from a pretty little yellow flower once raised on an island near Greece. The flower was sudden death in its pollen. Huh? You're Johnny Dollar, aren't you? Harrison the butler said you were up here. And you must be Walter Marson. What, uh... What are you doing in my room? Let me ask the questions, Marston. Now, just a minute. Look, mister, you may as well know it. I'm an insurance investigator. So Harrison said, but I don't believe it. Right here. My credentials. Uh-huh. Oh, I... I see, but I, I thought... You that... thought I was just a boyfriend that Ronnie Lamar met in La Jolla and who just came back here with her to comfort her over the loss of her father. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, you were wrong, mister. Or partly so. The main reason I'm here is to find out who murdered Thomas Lamar and why. And I think I found out... You have... Well, who, Mr. Dollar? Interesting book you've been reading here. Oh, 
Flora Exotica Mediterranea. Stolen from the Central Library over in Chicago, wasn't it? Well, yes. Yes, it was. Found a poison in it, didn't you, Marson? Pirate Dameron. Deadly, quick, and hard to trace. So rare that the chances were pretty good it wouldn't even be recognized. But it was. Where'd you get it, Walter? As you said, at the library. I'm talking about the poison, the pirate Dameron that killed Thomas Lamar. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're all wrong. Am I? Who besides Vani would benefit from the million and a half insurance on Lamar's life? Well, what made you think that... that I know that you I'd would. Be the... Because I know you're married to Vani. No. You tried I, to inveigle I... your way into Lamar's business, but he wouldn't have it. All your chiseling and conniving and phony stock transactions got you nowhere. So you did the next thing you could think of. You got something on Vani and forced her to marry you. So you thought you'd at least be sure of a big hunk of the insurance money over my dead oh, body. Oh, no, look, Dollar, maybe I was yeah, married sure, to Bonnie, but... I found out about her big gambling debts, got her off the hook by some fancy manipulation of her foster father's investments. No doubt threatened to tell him all about it unless she did marry you, and thereby guaranteed yourself a prosperous future. Oh, and you timed the whole thing beautifully when she was emotionally upset over the death of Mrs. Lamar. No, Dollar, you, you don't know but what you're talking about. Couldn't wait for him to die a natural death. <sighs> Dollar. Mr. Dollar. Sure, go ahead, speak up and make it good. Well, I, uh, I was married to Varney. But I'm not now. Sure. That's right. I did want a place in Lamar Metal Products, and I thought I could get it by showing Mr. Lamar how clever I was. Well, instead of throwing me out, he gave me another chance. I'll be forever grateful to him. The turning point in my life. I give you my word, Mr. Dollar, I've done nothing since that time that's been anything but completely honest and above board. Pretty speech. No, no, it, it's true. It's it's true, I swear it. Nevertheless, you married Vonnie in the hope We're that... divorced! You're... You're what? Well, it was the only honorable thing I could do. Would you like to see the final papers? Vonnie mailed them to me from Reno before she went to La Jolla. You mean she... Yeah, let me see them. Here. My death. Don't try to pull a gun out of there, Marcel. You still don't believe me, do you? Here they are. Hmm. Then would you like to tell me who did murder Thomas Lamar? I wish to heaven I knew. That's why I got this book, hoping to find some clue as to where the pirate Dameron might have come from. But you sneaked this book out of the because library. Because I was afraid of the very kind of suspicion that you've shown. Want to know something? I'm still showing. And I tell you, you're wrong. I, I, ask Vani. She'll tell you. Oh, where is she? Harrison said you two had gone out together to make arrangements for the funeral. Yes, we did, and we came back together. But when Harrison told her that you were here to see her, she... Well, she, she said she'd be back in a few minutes. Where did she go? Oh, she's still in the house somewhere, I, I think. Marson, just what is your relationship with Vani now? Well, there... Never was any love between us. Our marriage was only on paper. Yeah? As the foster daughter of the man to whom I owe so much, it's my duty to do what I can for her. In spite of her... Whatever what? Oh, even to the end, we, we kept from him any knowledge of her dissipations, her drinking and gambling. I thought that was all over. Oh, no. She's more deeply in debt now than she's ever been. I'm I'm thankful Mr. Lamar died without knowing what I'll be. But with the insurance, of course, you'll be able to pay off. Marson, you're a dirty rat, and your accusation isn't very well veiled. Are you trying to say that I'm accusing Vani of the... Murder? Oh. Mr. 
dollar. Yeah, go on. This book. According to this, the plant from which Pirate Dameron is derived is now extinct. Unless somebody, somewhere, managed to salvage some seeds that were yes, then planted. Yes, exactly. Referra purpurus calendus, found only on a small Grecian island. I, I wonder if Dimitri would know about Dimitri? Him. What's this sudden switch? Who's Dimitri? He's the old gardener. He's, he's here on the estate. Come on, Marson, and bring that book. Before going out to the gardener's cottage, I asked Harrison where Vani had gone, and he told us he only knew that she was somewhere in the grounds, that her car was still in the driveway. I phoned Larry Comstock again, but he'd left his office, presumably to come out here. And I called the man I'd talked to earlier at the library. Of course I can. As I told you before, I keep a very close check on the books in that section. Uh, let me see now. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Flora Exotica Mediterranea has only been out four or five times in the past several years. Once to a Mr. Thomas... Yeah? Uh, Thomas Hanley, oh. uh, to a Mr. Ralph Cummings, Miss LaVon Lamar, and... Uh... That's enough. Thanks. I tried not to show Marson how I felt as we walked out to the cottage of Dimitri, the old gardener. Could be nothing too nice for Mr. Lamar, so I always try to keep things nice. Yeah, I can see. Uh, Dimitri, Mr. Dollar's here to, to investigate the circumstances of... Mr. Lamar's death. Investigate? Oh, yes. I hope you find who do this terrible thing to such a fire. Well, I want you to look at this book. Here. Did you ever see a flower like that? Oh, yes. Yes? Where? In old country. In Greece it used to be, but no more. You never saw it in this country? No, yes. Well, which is it? Uh, I should not say, because in old countries... Against the law. I don't know why. Well, I do. Go on, Dimitri. But I keep many of my nice seeds anyway. And some of them were for this flower? Yes. You don't mind? It is very pretty flower. Did you ever plant any of them? Oh, no, no, not I. Somebody else? She was always so nice to me. Funny. Miss Lamar? <laughs> Look, sir. She even sent me gift on her trip last week. Dimitri. Look, look. You call it toilet case. See? It have soap and toothbrush and comb. Dollar. Dollar, look, look. That, that toothbrush. I am looking. The yellow stain on the bristles, the same color as the flower on this deadly plant. So, so pretty. She sent her father one of these two. Oh, Dollar, I'm sick. You sick, poor so man? So crude, so corny, and so obvious it would never be noticed. And she was safely a couple of thousand miles away, beyond any possible suspicion when the... Dimitri, yes. did she plant any of these seeds you gave her? She often planted many kinds. Where? He's... Show us. In the morning, maybe. It's getting pretty dark now. Now, now, now. Come on. Come on, Marcel. Yeah. You, you, you must not tell her, I show you. She always keep her little garden secret. She not even think I know. She very sweet girl. Yeah, very. But now... You know, oh, oh, wait. Huh? She there now, cultivating. Cultivating? With a shovel? Dimitri, go back to your cottage and stay there. Oh, you want... Come on, Marson. She's, she's digging. Digging. And I think I know why. She sees us. Go back. Go away, both of you. Stay here. I want to talk to you, Vani. 
What are you doing? What I'm doing is... I'm burying the little garden that was mine for Daddy. Little personal things, Johnny, that I grew with my own hands for him alone. Now that he's gone, this would be only one more bit of memory. Please, leave me, Johnny, to finish. Wait, Bonnie. What? Before you turn under that little yellow flower. Here, I'll show you. No, Johnny, don't touch it. Here. Source of a poison called pyridamarin. How did you know? Here, look. Oh, oh, no, you don't. I'll kill you, too. I'll kill you. Oh, nobody, no. Oh, Walter. Walter, help me. Help you, help you. Johnny was in love with me, but I turned him down, and he he came out here. Oh, good, Bonnie. I hate you. I hate you both. Everything would have been all right if you hadn't come along. I hate you. I... Listen, Johnny. Million dollars. Million and a half. You and I could... You no, Johnny, please don't. Please! Believe me, this is one case I wish I'd never seen. Oh, sure, you, the company, are all right. You won't have to pay off a million and a half in insurance. Your gain. But me, I've lost something. Faith. Faith in... I'm sick over the whole thing. Expense account, I'll add it up later. Right now, I'm going out and get roaring... Get some flowers. Some clean flowers. And just sit and look at them. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now here's our star to tell you about next week's exciting story. Next week, tell me, did you ever wake up from a pleasant dream to find a smoking gun in your hand and two bodies at your feet? Well, I have. Join us next week and I'll tell you about it. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. It is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote this week's story. Heard in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Eric Snowden, Howard McNair, John Daner, Gene Tatum, Joseph Kearns, Paul Richards, and Jack Moyles. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. Welcome back. Well, some mixed thoughts on this uh, serial. Um, I kind of saw the solution coming, but that may partially be to uh, 
due to having heard it before. This one also seemed to have some particularly uh, long uh, interviews with uh, single uh, characters. Uh, I think that uh, the the big upside of this series uh, is is the end for uh, Johnny. I I don't think I don't think that um, Bonnie uh, Lamar was uh, was really planning some sort of thing about who would investigate the insurance uh, claim. Uh, that's probably giving too much credit to planning. Uh, for the normal person to plan out a, uh, a murder and then to know who exactly is going to investigate, it seems hard to, um, uh, hard to, to swallow. So I think her interest in him, uh, whatever it was, was not tied at all to the murder case. Um, and of course, this is the second straight week. Uh, that he's he's had uh, something like this happen, though he wasn't um, uh, romantically involved with the uh, secretary. He had kind of taken a uh, from the last week's show. He kind of taken a protective uh, stance toward her, only to have a sort of uh, betrayal. And uh, you know, I think it felt like just a typical uh, hard-boiled femme fatale story. Until you, you know, you got to the end of the story. And then that last minute turn I thought was, uh, brilliant. Um, which, I, which kind of shows that Johnny, um, will continue to, um, to not let this, you know, what he encounters, uh, change him. Uh, in terms of turning him into somebody who's just totally hard and cynical. He's certainly no one's fool. And uh, I think that what uh, made this happen um, was that he, he didn't meet her at the time, you know, during the murder investigation, but uh, before that. Uh, I think he would have been more wary during the murder investigation. But we'll see what's ahead for next week. Uh, I do want to let you know that coming up next week, uh, we have our second um, serial with a lost episode, this time part two missing. So we'll have parts one and three on Monday, and then we will have another program on Wednesday. Then next Wednesday will be the Johnny Fletcher Mysteries, and again, Friday we'll have parts four and five. Uh, this week, uh, it's time for us to go to Dr. Tim, and today's episode is titled, The Second Alarm. This is Dr. Tim, detective, to bring you, by transcription, The Mystery of the Second Alarm. knocked on the door to my laboratory and consulting room one morning a few weeks ago was a woman in her early 30s who gave her name as... I'm Mrs. Hugh A. Miller, doctor, and I live in the next house just beyond the vacant lot. Won't you sit down, Mrs. Miller? Yes, thank you. I've been told that you're both a doctor and a detective. Yes, you might call it that, but I don't, as a rule, take private cases. What is your problem? Well, I have every reason to believe that my husband's father, who lives with us, is, well, not quite right, if you know what I mean. And in the next place, I think he's hiding a fortune. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I don't quite see what well, you... Well, I thought you might examine him. You know, 
put him away somewhere for a little while. But and... that's a matter for a psychiatrist. You'd have to get his consent or else sell out papers in a legal manner. Oh, no, no, no. That's just what I don't want to do. There mustn't be any publicity. You see, what I want is to get him out of the house long enough to make a thorough search of his room. He never leaves it. And I'm sure he has thousands and thousands of dollars hidden in that room somewhere. I've almost caught him several times. But he's too... Well, too crafty. Mrs. Miller, what you're proposing is highly irregular. Perhaps even criminal. I'll forget what you've told me. Just at that moment, there was a disturbance in the hall outside. I recognized the voices of my two friends, Sandy and Jill, and a third I'd never heard before. Jill is my landlady's daughter, and Sandy's a pal of hers. I opened the door and into the room they walked, with a policeman grasping each one firmly by the arm. You the doctor? Yes. These kids say they're friends of yours. I'm a doctor, Sam. We didn't mean any harm. We're just having some fun. Gosh, how are we in all the... Dutton fired the weeds in the lot next door they was. And if I hadn't been walking along on the way home... Well, he says he had it better than jail. Now, hold on a moment. Both you kids. Officer, I think we both realize how serious setting fires can be. Burn the whole neighborhood down, playing with matches, they will. Well, we didn't mean... However, I can vouch for them if you're... Just one moment, officer. I'd like to say that it isn't the first time they've been in trouble for setting fires. Oh, are you all right? After all, I've lived on the other side of that lot for several years, and I can tell you... I looked at Mrs. Miller in amazement, and I should have been able to see right then what she was getting at, but I didn't. Jill and Sandy don't ordinarily play with fire, and they aren't problems to the neighborhood. I ought to know, because we've been friends a long time, and they've given me some mighty valuable help in my cases. Anyway... Within a few minutes, Officer Barton had turned them over to my care with a warning. Mrs. Miller had left after glaring at me with a look of hatred, and Sandy, Jill, and I were alone. From their looks, they were sorry kids, and I could tell they were expecting to really catch it this time. There they stood, silent and scared. Finally. Gee. Gee, Dr. Tim, we're dope. Bigger dopes than you realize, maybe. Let me see your hand, Sandy. Oh, it's nothing. Just burned it a little. Jill, hand me the cereal bandages. Okay. Thanks. Ow! Oh, still, until I get a dressing on that burn. But aren't you going to put grease or something on it? I am not. First, I'm going to clean the hand thoroughly to prevent any infection. Ointments and greasy medicines many times are the best means of spreading infection in burns. Of course, if it's a very severe burn, certain infection-stopping drugs are necessary. Gosh, it hurts! I could say at this point, young man, it serves you right. The whole stella moment. Yes, you're lucky. Ever see a human body with really bad burns on it? The kind you might have had if your clothes had caught on fire in that vacant lot? No. Well, not a pretty sight. It can mean months in the hospital. Infections so bad to look at it would make you sick at your stomach. Dressings in burn cases often have to be changed under an anesthetic like ether because the pain is so terrible. Then you go through more months of operations where skin is taken from unburned parts of your body and grafted to the places where the fire is burned clear down into the muscles. Sometimes you wish you'd died. You'd be scarred forever. Yes, doctors today can save the lives of people who have lost 70% of the skin in their bodies with penicillin, with blood transfusions and blood fractions, and with modern hospital care. But believe me, it's the most horrible pain in the world. All right, Sandy, your burn is dressed. Now look at it again tomorrow. Above all, don't break those blisters. Okay, Dr. Kim. Honest to gosh, Dr. Kim, we'll never play with fire again. About a half 
later, Sandy and Jill had gone to think over what I'd told them, I hope. And before settling down to some chemical tests I was making in connection with a murder case, I happened to glance out of the window. Mrs. Hugh Miller, whom I'd almost forgotten in the excitement, was walking towards her house with a bundle under her arm. It was a rather sizable package in somewhat odd shape. And I didn't think much about it at the time. Instead, as I worked with my laboratory apparatus, I pondered upon the fantastic story of old Mr. Miller, her father-in-law, and the mysterious treasure he was supposed to have hidden in his room. I talked to him a few times, as neighbors will, the summer before. I put him down in my mental notebook as perfectly harmless, but a little queer. When the First World War had ended back in 1918, he'd been with the Army of Occupation in Germany for a while. He had a pension, he told me, and had decided a year or so ago to come live with his son and daughter-in-law. That was all I knew, except that his health was none too good. And he rarely left his room these days and hadn't been out of the house since fall. But where Mrs. Hugh Miller had gotten hold of the idea that her father-in-law was hiding a treasure, I couldn't imagine. I wish now I'd taken the trouble to think things through, even talk to the old man. It might have saved a lot of suffering. just getting dark when I finished my lab test and glanced out of the window that faced the Miller house. I rubbed my eyes and looked twice. For at that moment, there burst out of the Miller's back door an apparition wrapped in flame. If it hadn't been for the dreadful scream that burst from it, I would never recognize that flaming torch as a human being. In one bound, I was out of my door, over the fence, and running toward the Miller's. Sandy and Jill were in front of me. From which direction they came, I didn't know. Still, the flame-covered creature ran around in circles. I shouted, Sandy! Jill! Stop him! Stop him! Don't let him run! Grab a blanket off that clothesline and wrap him up in it! Okay, Dr. Jim. Before I could reach the Miller yard, Sandy and Jill had both made flying tackles of the flaming figure and were rolling him over and over in the dirt, smothering out the flame with a blanket. In a moment, I joined them. The thing, for that's the only way to describe it now, was still, except for a moaning sound that came out of his burned and agonized face. Oh, Lord, I thought. Why will people run when their clothes are on fire? To lie down and smother the flame is their only salvation. I was giving the man, for it was old Mr. Miller, first aid when his daughter-in-law came shouting out the door. Gosh, I'll bet she hasn't even called the fire department. I'll call them. But Mrs. Miller went running back into the house, as Jill told me later, and was telephoning when Jill came panting up to her. By this time, the whole neighborhood was gathering around the house. And it seemed like hardly a moment after I turned again to the suffering figure lying on the grass that the fire engines came charging up, followed by an ambulance, a squad car, and all the rescue apparatus. The fire was quickly put out. It was only after the old man had been put into the ambulance that I had a chance to notice what was going on. The first thing I heard was Mrs. Miller shouting. They did it. It was those two kids right there. You know yourself, officer, that you caught them setting fires this morning. But how do you know they did? I saw them running around the corner of the house just after I noticed the blaze. And I'll testify in court that they did it. Well, you two kids, I don't know whether you're guilty or not, but I'll have to take you down to the station for questioning. minutes later, the officer had left with Sandy and Jill. Both of them had thrown me anguished looks, but were bravely holding back their tears. I could have done something, I suppose, but there wasn't time. I had to get into that house as quickly as possible. I was beginning to put two and two together, and I was certain that what I would discover would solve a part of the mystery, at least. I knew who had set that fire, and why.
Whispering a few words into the ear of the fire chief, I saw him nod and lead the way into the Miller house, while Mrs. Miller was still talking excitedly with the neighbors. I hoped Mrs. Miller wouldn't see us go in, or she might destroy the very evidence to prove my case. It was at the door to the old man's room I found the first thing I was looking for. A home fire extinguisher. Empty. The rug and the bedclothes were burned, and the room was filled with smoke. But aside from this, there was little evidence of the fire. On my hands and knees, I sniffed at the floor. There was an odor of kerosene. Faint, but recognizable. One more thing remained to do. I lifted the phone, dialed a number, waited until there was an answer, and asked one question. Hello? Dr. Tim speaking. Yes. Will you give me the exact time of the first telephone call to report the fire at 1216 East Beaumont Place? No, no, not the second. The first thing I did after finding out about those calls was to call the doctor at the hospital. The old man had a chance to live. Thanks to the prompt way in which Sandy and Jill handled the emergency and to modern hospital care and medical advances. He'd been treated with a new technique discovered during the war. The use of pressurized Vaseline. Blood transfusions, blood fractions, all the miracles of modern science were being used. Then I hopped into my car and went down to the police station. Two scared kids faced me. I know you didn't, kids, and I'm sorry I had to let things go as far as this. The real criminal's been arrested. And Officer Barton says to tell you he never really believed you set that fire in the first place. But he had to question you because of what Mrs. Miller said. Oh, he treated us well. But who did do it? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Well, it was a person who called upon me this morning. And I'm afraid she got the idea of how to scare an old man into disclosing the hiding place for his money when Officer Barton brought you into the office for starting fires in the vacant lot. You mean Mrs. Miller? I do. I should have known when I saw her walk past my window with a fire extinguisher. Wrapped up, but still, I should have known. But, gee, what happened? Well, she meant just to scare the old man so he'd grab his money out of the hiding place and run. Everything went fine, except Mrs. Miller was too smart. She called the fire department first and then started the fire. I thought the trucks got there too quickly after the first alarm, which was really the second. And gee, I bet she put the fire out with the extinguisher, or almost out, so it really wouldn't burn the house down. Exactly. And then blamed you two kids. Which shows the importance of a good reputation. She almost got you convicted because of the fire this morning. Yeah, hung the rap on us, by golly. What about the treasure? No, I guess we won't know the answer until old Mr. Miller can talk. There was no trace of it. Sure there was. I've got it right here in my pocket. The old man was clutching it in his hand when he ran out of the house. Sandy handed me the remains of some charred banknotes. In one corner of each was printed the figure one million, five million, fifty thousand, not dollars, but marks. Worthless, inflated German marks of thirty years ago, not worth the paper they were printed on. You see, the old man had picked them up while he was in the army of occupation in Germany and had thought for years they'd be worth something, that he'd become a millionaire. And for that, he had almost lost his life. That and one other reason. When Mrs. Miller's plan had miscarried, and she'd set him on fire, too, he should have remembered the most elementary thing in the world. And that's don't get panicky. Don't run, even toward water. Just lie down and roll, or wrap yourself in something to smother the fire. I'll bet Sandy and Jill never forget it. This 
is Dr. Tim Detective, saying so long until next week at this same time, when Sandy, Jill, and I will bring you by transcription, The Mystery of the Dog That Did and Didn't. Welcome back. Uh, The most interesting part of this episode, other than the science stuff, is just kind of the uh, audaciousness of the daughter-in-law. You know, basically walks up to a complete stranger of a doctor and says, you know what, I was wondering if you could help me uh, plunder the estate of my father-in-law. Uh, maybe that'd be something you would be able to assist me with. Uh, so definitely some boldness. But, uh, I like this episode really. Uh, I, they do a good job mixing in the plot and the mystery and, uh, the educational lessons. I think in a way that kids would, uh, remember. Um, of course, uh, you know, listening to this, I can't help but, uh, feel of how uh, much more, um, in many ways, uh, subdued or um, uh, cautious uh, children's television and uh, entertainment is in general. Uh, To have a storyline like this, you know, it would be like, you know, we'll get sued by somebody or, you know, uh, some group's going to complain. But things are, I guess, a little more straight up and just... Uh, telling them, you know, what the real danger, this can happen, um, and uh, I think definitely uh, an appropriate uh, message, and uh, really covered uh, some good ground here, uh, particularly I, I think that was a great object lesson on not running while you're on fire, and uh, we do actually have a listener comment from Kevin regarding uh, Dr. Tim, uh, who says, hi, Adam, uh, I just finished hearing uh, uh, Dr. Tim. Thanks for sharing those. I uh, look forward to uh, uh, the others. Uh, what an interesting combination of themes. Glad some of these survived, although I suppose it wouldn't have been a long runner. It was an interestingly different format. Obviously, there was a lot of experimentation at what uh, might make a good radio. Thanks again for sharing. Well, thanks, Kevin. We don't know a whole lot about this series, other than there were 13... Uh, episodes made, and uh, as best we can tell anyway, um, and we've got seven of them, and uh, there's not a whole lot of information as to, you know, uh, like I said, it was not in the encyclopedia of old-time radio. Uh, there were some radio, uh, there was some uh, uh, radio in the school's uh, programs so it's uh, possible, anyway, uh, that this was uh, part of uh, that uh, sort of effort and was uh, pr- produced for just that uh, purpose. Uh, certainly no big uh, stars in there. Um, so we don't know about the audience or you know whether there was any thought that there might be additional programs. We just know it was from... Uh, Monarch and beyond that, uh, we don't really have any information. So we'll have more to come, though. It'll be two weeks till our next uh, Dr. Tim. Uh, is next week, no Dr. Tim uh, returning in two weeks due to the lost uh, Johnny Dollar episode we explained after yours truly, Johnny Dollar. 
Uh, all right, and we have one more listener comment. Uh, this one coming from Justin, who says, Thank you for bringing um, us this series regarding Mr. Moto. When I was in college, uh, radio stations played uh, OTR uh, Detectives, and this series was my favorite. Until now, I haven't been able to find the show on iTunes. Thank you for all you do to keep old-time radio alive and accessible. Well, you're certainly welcome, Justin, and we're glad to... Uh, bring you this uh, uh, forgotten uh, show in Mr. Moto, and uh, you'll uh, keep listening for what else we've got to come. All right. Well, uh, that will do it for today. We will be back on Monday with a new Johnny Dollar story, and then uh, be sure and join us two weeks from today for the next uh, Dr. Tim uh, story. And uh, tomorrow we have the lineup coming up. Send your comments to Box13 at uh, GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives. And uh, become one of our friends on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.